0: go back you could tell Neil that we haven't been ignoring him we've literally been trying to keep this a secret so because he was like when are we you know we got to record from you know the, the floor we got to do something we'll we'll do it early in the morning and we'll record all the while all we've got in our hand, well we're going to record with the pan just not you
1: so should I tell him or no no tell him well don't make no. him all anxious when are you going to no. let him know
0: he's listening
1: he doesn't listen to him
2: That's he will
3: right. he will Hey everybody, it's Evan here from the Arcuspeak Podcast, and I'm sitting in an airport lounge waiting for my delayed flight home from New York City and editing this podcast right here on my laptop. And uh, what I wanted to do was give you kind of a heads up on this special bonus episode of Arcuspeak, where Cormac and I got together with Bill Janet from Arcat under the big red A at the AIA National Conference on the show floor a few days ago to kind of get his live reaction from the show floor. And you can hear a plane just outside the window spooling up its engines here. Uh, We were also joined by a very special guest, and that guest's last name is recognizable to you listeners who have been listening for a while. It's Pan, but it wasn't Neil Pan. It was Joan Farrin Pan, Neal's better half and she was at the show so she stopped by the booth to record with us what her experience was at the show as well we're really excited to bring you this bonus episode and it was really fun to record and to get some additional uh, people on the show and uh, it was it was also very fun to keep this a secret from Neal so let us know what you thought of the show let us know what you thought of the episodes if you didn't make it to the show we'd love to hear from you You can hit us up on Twitter, on Facebook, or you can email us. You can find all those links at ArcaSpeakPodcast.com. Let's get into the show.
1: This episode of ArcaSpeak is brought to you by Arcat.
4: Arcat has a bunch of content that you guys can use, and it's all free, and I'm happy to be on this podcast. Thank you, guys.
3: Welcome to ArcaSpeak, the podcast that talks about what it's like to work in the profession of architecture. So we are at AIA Con 18. This is the architecture conference, the national conference, and we're at Javits Center in New York City. We are under the big red A at the RCAT booth, which is amazingly popular this is awesome you guys are getting a lot of traffic oh yeah uh and so it cormac and i are sitting here cormac what do you think so far of the city Of oh, city yeah
0: uh, that's the better thing to talk about <laughs> my, my feet are dying yeah <laughs> but my <laughs> my dogs are barking how about this we'll say it my feet are dead but my heart is full yeah there you go in your eyes. Oh yes, my yes gosh. in my eyes, so it's much doing. to see. So today
3: on our on this segment of the show, we've got Bill Janet of the Arcat, and Bill has yeah. been a longtime friend of the show, and we thought it'd be fun to include his perspective of what what's going on here at the AIA convention conference, I should say, uh, on architecture. So welcome. Thank you, guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks it's a pleasure
4: for to be here,
0: being up for this. Yeah. So so normally we have a perspective with either. Evans or Neils or I, perspective from the perspective of the architect and the, the goer, and we wanted to kind of get perspective from one of the trades show, behind the curtain. The behind. The what curtain is it like processing the all these architects through your booth.
3: Uh,
4: it's it's very hard. Um, I'm not an architect. I'm a programmer. I you know I work on the website and all the tech here at Arcad. So it's always a learning process whenever I talk to you guys. Um, I'm getting uh, a better feel for the world that you guys work in, Uh, so the more of you guys I talk to, um, the better I can design a website, the better I can design tools for you guys to use.
3: And just give everybody an overview of what Arcad why, why does RCAD exist?
4: Uh, it exists to provide uh, content free to architects like BIM objects, CAD details, specifications. Uh, we're, we're like that tireless employee that just keeps crunching out material for you guys to put into your documents.
3: You are the link. The key link between manufacturers and architects.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We help the manufacturers' information get to you guys. Awesome.
0: Which is great because I'll tell you as a longtime user, um, almost any time we're sitting around, and we had this conversation, you know, uh, earlier and yesterday when we stopped by and we were kind of talking with you about how we kind of like filter. Um, Project, product information during, into our projects, uh, you know, we're always kind of like just doing it very, almost an, even though it's digital, it's very analog in the way that we're doing it. And me, I've always appreciated Arcad because it's kind of a one-stop shop. I can find everything. I can tag things. I can download the specs. I can download the information. And it helps me out a hell of a lot better than uh, the kind of, like I said, the analog way we do things.
4: Yeah, well, that that's what we work on every single day to try and make that whole process easier and uh, we got a long way to go <laughs> yeah how did,
0: how did you get started I mean
4: uh, it's a pretty good story actually um, let's see back in 1991 uh, this guy my dad started the company uh, because he had just left another company maybe some of your users have heard of sweets I believe we have yeah, yeah? okay
0: they used to uh, hold down the the um, the chipboard uh, when we were gluing it down, and <laughs> when you pile something up something heavy. Pile up the Sweets catalogs, and <laughs>
4: yeah, there were there were a lot of them, and you can't see this on the podcast, but my arms are stretched out. That's how many volumes there were. Yeah. Oh yeah. And yeah. that was roughly when he left Sweets yeah. and a few years went by, and he said, "Hey, uh, I think I can pull this off," and he started our Uh with six sales reps, uh, thirteen-page website with specifications on it. And, uh, you know, a few short years later, here we are. Yeah. And uh, um, another cool part of the story, uh, my dad's 70th birthday, uh, we signed our 700th client that year. Oh wow. oh, wow. And uh, it was a very happy birthday for him. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. You know, okay. That's amazing. And
3: then
0: all the Almost fortuitous number so I there. I know.
4: Yeah, yeah. 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 everything great. all lined up. But, um, you know, his he knows that architects don't want to spend money on this stuff, and his whole goal was...
0: <laughs> so, well, no, it's so is can't say that architects are cheap? No, <laughs> it's
4: just a fact. Because uh, all his years <laughs> at Suites... Yes. Um, oh, wow. my um, so yes. God. I strip it. You know, everyone wants to charge the architect for this, that, and the other thing. Right. And all these studies said that architects would pay for stuff. When, when it came down to it, they wouldn't pay for it. Right. So our model has always been have the manufacturers pay for it and offer everything for free. And I haven't talked to a user who doesn't love that.
3: Yeah, no, <laughs> right. absolutely. So we're at the show, and we're in the middle of the show floor. Okay. I mean, uh, um, as our listeners you know, can I, hear um, the, the background noise, I mean, we're, we're here live. Uh what, what's, what are you seeing out there that's got you excited about on this show floor?
4: Um, I've been very interested in VR and how it's somehow going to work its way into the nooks and crannies of, of your guys' process. The uh, Like, I know there's uh, a lot of apps out there that allow you to hop into the model, uh, experience it, and mark it up in real time. Um, but I've been playing around with you know, apps and prototypes that I've shown you, where it's more of a sketch tool. Um, and I don't know if that's a good idea or not. No one's told me it is, um, which is fine. So, you know, I'm not an architect. Well, you were
3: you were showing that off at Autodesk University. Was it last year or the year before? Uh, a year before. Okay. And, and I got the chance to go inside there and play with it and make something. I don't know. Yeah. Nobody, like, really had any preconceived ideas about the cool thing they were gonna build you just went in and start playing with it and I think that was the cool thing right it was was I don't feel any pressure I can just go in and it's like finger painting at that point exactly and uh, so there's no pressure and you don't you're not trying to make a masterpiece and I think that was what was so compelling about it was to see that it really can be loose and, and fun
4: and uh, like when I use it I get lost like I was preparing um, for this show to, to do VR demos, um, and it's in New York, so I, I looked up uh, interesting uh, New York architecture, and I and I discovered. Sorry, I'm not an architect, so I didn't know about the uh, World Trade Center Oculus. It's freaking amazing. We were, Ian Cormac yeah. were talking about it. How oh, there's a few flaws in it. Yeah, we we we'll we'll save that for a different show. Yeah. Okay so yeah, in yeah, VR, there are opinions
0: yeah there are opinions <laughs>
4: <laughs> good,
0: bad, or indifferent there are a few opinions
4: well I was I was kind of blown away by the pictures and I'm like oh, that looks pretty easy to, to sketch out in VR and so I I cranked one out in about I don't know three minutes real rough one and then I spent another 20 minutes and I did find it and before I knew it I had a you know there was nothing perfect about it but it was the model. yeah, yeah. And I zoomed in, and I was at the top of the, the observation deck, looking into the space, looking up through the skylights. And um, again, I got lost. You got to experience
3: that space that you yeah. made.
4: Yeah. And I would imagine that architects would, would embrace that kind of process. It's a new oh, kind absolutely. of
0: Lego, right? What? Well, I mean, and it also can be, you know, like, most people think that VR, or at least... Most people who don't know what VR is, um, they think that VR is, oh, I, I need to spend a lot of time building a model and processing it and all this other stuff and making it look finished and polished. Perfect. And so then I can, you know, then it can really use do something. And I think, and you know, I'm kind of on the show floor, I'm staring at a screen that the VR cat, um, where I'm watching um, just kind of some very rough, Kind of and, like, vr like, uh, we, you know, stuff that, and then it starts to evolve and it's marked up and everything else and sort of caught my eye but there's the opportunity to be able to do a lot more conceptual design in vr that then i mean one of the things that we do and we're sketching by hand and we're doing a lot of like conceptual stuff by hand in the 2d world but we're doing it for a 3d you know process
3: and, it's,
0: and it's time, and time to really start to sketch uh, in a 3D world so that we can really get going with it and start to visualize it and then have it move on to the next iteration and the next iteration and really get kind of going with it. So I I honestly think that there's a, a tool out or a market out there for VR as a concept tool.
4: Mm. Um, Evan, you've mentioned... Just said Lego. So, another prototype I've been working on uh, over the last couple of months is a Lego esque VR experience where um, you set up the app with a bunch of uh, blocks. So, I had blocks of a chunk of foundation, a chunk of an insulated wall, a, win- a few windows and doors, some floor panels and joists, and these Lego blocks are available in VR where you can grab them and snap them together. Right? Awesome. And I mean, it doesn't kind work Kind of
3: Minecraft-ish, right?
2: Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah.
4: Uh, but before you knew it, I had like a, a little cutaway of a house. Like a mock-up. Again in yeah. minutes. Yeah. Um, so I was talking to a guy just a few minutes ago from comp and he's, he works in, in VR in the office. He does programming and whatnot. And he wanted to lay out an office space um, where he could just take uh, different desk layouts. And he said... If I could just Lego them together and show the client right there, we could play around with a bunch of different layouts in, in a matter of minutes. And he could be in the space experiencing, is that enough space in between desks and whatnot? And how did it feel?
3: Yeah, and now with multi-user VR, uh, that's great because you guys can both be in that environment at the same time. In the same room or not in or the same the, room. Other Anywhere. Side of the country. other side of the continent. Yeah, so... There's some amazing stuff happening there. We were just over talking to Shane at the Iris VR booth, and Cormac, you, and, and Brett got to do a, yeah. a multi-user demo and be, meet in the model, as we say. you know. So that, that's kind of cool. Even though you guys were standing right there next to each other, you could see right. how powerful that would be. If you've got more than one office, you're in a right. different location, you guys can meet in the model, discuss things, mark things up. Try different layouts even for different things, you can preload scenes, you can guide people through yeah, it, anyway. um, and I think that's the real successful innovation in VR as of late, is the multi-person thing, because you're not just all alone in there. Now sometimes that's what you want, you want to go away and you want to make something, and you want to experience it by yourself without anybody else, but then there's other times when you want to collaborate in there and you want to talk about ideas or you want to make changes or you want to present something to somebody. And it's way better than talking over their shoulder. You're talking with them in the model then. Right. Actually,
0: even something kind of pulled back a little bit. So a lot of of firms now are trying to just decide whether or not VR is right for them. And actually what Shane was talking about with the multi-user is he can actually do VR tutorials. From New York to, like, say, where we are in Baltimore, he could, you know he's got the tools, if we've got the tools, he could basically do tutorials and learning sessions on VR. And be there with you. And be there with you. Be there right next to you telling you how to do all of this stuff. Yeah, he can, see, he can see your
3: mannerisms yeah. and see right. if you're doing something that you shouldn't be or and, and guide you from inside your project. It so was, you're learning VR and you're learning about architecture and the project and experiencing it all at the same time.
4: Uh, so it was four years ago when, when I got hooked into VR, I was at, uh, I was talking to Shane, and he was showing me uh, Iris VR way back then. I drew a corkscrew in midair and stuck my head through it, and I'm like, oh my god, this is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah.
3: (laughs) So what else are you seeing at the show that's got you excited, or or maybe things you're hearing about? Um, You you talk to so many architects, you've got to have some, what are they asking?
4: Well, uh, um, the first time I've heard it was this year, at this show, now, this is not a new subject. It's connecting specs to BIM.
0: Right. Yeah. You guys brought it up? <laughs> we were... Yeah.
4: Um, and two other uh, architects I talked to brought it up. And now, where, where did that come from uh, with you guys? Did something uh, pop up in the news, or is no. this something you've had all along?
3: No, I think we're seeing it as a need because... Yeah. Uh, firms are growing right now in big ways, and so balls are getting dropped. <laughs> yeah. Hate to say it, but yes. but this is a this is a reality that we deal with, right? Especially right now during you know the, the economy that we have and the projects that are under construction or are in the drawing phases, and just making sure we don't miss stuff. Right. And the spec department is number one difficult position to hire for, as far as finding capable, available people.
4: Yeah, there's just not that many of them out there.
3: And number two, I mean, it's it's just you've got so many projects and so many teams that are all trying to coordinate. Things don't get communicated. And so what are ways that we can do to enhance that collaboration on the project team when you've got like a dedicated team to a project and then you've got some spec writers who are doing every single project in the office mm-hmm. and and they can't catch everything, right? So what do they do, what do we do to enhance that communication level? And so so where I'm coming from is, is there a tool that exists or that we can build that will actually help make that process go smoother,
0: more efficiently, less errors? And and from my perspective and my point of view, I actually kind of see a long-term vision of this we're slowly, slowly but surely moving away from the, the print model of delivery where we print a bunch of sets out and we send them to the contractor and the contractor's using them. You know, we already see that, you know, they're walking around with iPads and using iPads and things like that. But, you know, more of my current projects we're doing, you know, BIM coordination meetings and things like that. We're, you know, hovering through Navisworks and stuff. So- and we're going to get to the point where we're not going to be building, and I say this so many times on the podcast, but we're not going to be building from the draw, you know, like a printed drawing. We're going to be building from the model. And so if we're turning the model over to the contractors, we should be turning the specs over, like the full documentation. The information set. should be linked yeah.
3: should to be all the elements. All integrated.
0: Right. Yeah.
4: yeah, so it's not really a set of documents anymore, it's a model with links inside. Embedded information. Yeah, yeah. 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 So you, you click on a door for instance and up pops a, a like a browser window inside this environment that has a specification and maybe links to other data sheets? They're gonna have our schedules and everything else like that. So they'll be
0: able to link in all of the schedules and, and know where, you know, how many doors we have. Well, okay, so how many doors we have, what type of doors, what type of finish we have on the what type of hardware, you know, what type of frame, all of this other stuff we're sort of there with the information that we're putting in or the information that we're pulling down from the internet from well, all the different yeah, manufacturers. quantities and
3: sizes right yeah but we really but, need manufacturer data right so as part of that
4: exactly. i wonder who has <laughs> us some
3: manufactured data yeah and i wonder why we talk to you about it <laughs> exactly
4: uh yeah so we we internally have been talking about this for 10 years and I've talked to a lot of spec writers and a lot of architects that say, no, we don't need that. Um, this so, is the first time I've heard, yeah, we need that. I guess I'm I, talking to I, the I wrong
0: people. I, I honestly don't think that, I mean, spec writers, I could, like I said, I can understand why the spec writer is going to say that. Because the spec writer wants his job, you know. <laughs> and if we we're basically taking that out of them, and as part of the data collection and the data distribution in the VIM model, we are... We're taking that out of their hands, and we're putting it into the BIM model. Well, then we don't have a need for them. Well, you know? well, not correct won't, won't. me if
4: I'm wrong. You still need someone who's a <laughs> we, product expert, yes, and the spec yes. writer is that. That's they are a shows.
3: database, right? They know if your firm has a, a history at all. Right. There's, there's products that you know that work, and there's a lot of products that you know that don't, and. If you can somehow embed that kind of information right. into a project team—not necessarily the project, right. but the team—that's are going to save a lot of money. Valuable information,
0: yeah. And honestly, I actually see that you know this is—you know—the spec writer should be and would be more of a technical advisor to all of the projects and how it's used within um, the BIM software and what's the you know what's the most current, up-to-date product and everything else. So they really. So we would kind of take the typing out of their hands, yeah, and we would have them as an advisory role, um, and, you know, a curator, mean, editorial, e- exactly. Because, yeah, because right. to be quite honest with you, the guy that does our spec writing is fantastic, you know. And literally, there's just—I walked up to him and I was like—I asked him a question because we never, never really had, you know, um, posed the questions like, okay, well, what if? I get a submittal, and they're giving me test data that's 25 years old. What in our specs says that we need to be getting the the most advanced um, information? You know, the most advanced spec. Now I know the answer was you know well we're specifying the latest and most current you know whether it's ANSI or whoever um, testing standards, and they should be following that. But not everybody knows that. Or should we edit the spec a little bit to actually say? no testing information or no testing data for older than five years. They gave me 25-year-old stuff and I'm like, really? I know for a fact that Connie tests all of their stuff on an almost annual basis so you could get the most current testing data. And and so that's why he's important, and that's why he's there, so that he can kind of guide us in understanding. situations him, like that. Understand why we would suggest, say, an extended warranty for something, or just the manufacturer's standard warranty. I mean, these guys actually know that stuff. So I, I didn't mean or you know, to hint that they, we have no use for them because we have more than mm-hmm. enough use for yeah, them. Yeah. And actually, sometimes, especially larger firms, they may only have like one spec writer, and it's so pulled so you like oh my god I have to wait like two weeks before I get any you yeah. know any shot at this guy um, so
4: yeah so, so maybe a tool like this would streamline the spec writer more so he has more time to yeah, less time you doing guys. stuff
0: they don't want to do and more yeah, time doing yeah. what they're wrestling good
4: at with yeah. with word files
0: right and and I honestly think that you know and this is just a little pet peeve of mine that as much as we need a spec writer we also need that the project team to understand what's in the specs. Because nine times out of ten, they may have a spec writer, they'll do all of that, you know, they'll do all of the work, and the project team has absolutely no idea what's actually specified well, in the, the project. Well, the more we can integrate those two separate exactly. thing, documents together, yes. the
3: team is stronger, yeah. and the spec writer is way more integrated because they're actually going to be in the model and seeing what is in there... Instead of you're hoping that they look at the drawings and compare it to the spec right now. Yep. And that's yeah. not really happening when people are slammed for time. Right. So the more we can get the spec writer into the model to see what's actually in the project, the better. Yep. So I think that's another win for this kind of an idea.
4: Well that's does it. does the spec writer actually get into the model or does he have no. a view Ours outside does.
0: of it? Ours does. He does. Oh yeah, yeah. Huh. He you know, he's in there and he's well whether he's in the model doing like a say a red line review of you know he'll go through and he'll look at all of our um, our schedules and things like that he'll even go through and kind of like click on certain items just to kind of find out whether or not everything that we have you know like in our analog um, little separate folder of product information and all that other stuff you know will Do at least a little bit of legwork for him and say, you know, division seven, you know, division eight, those kind of things that will populate at least those. But he goes through and basically back checks us. And that's a great thing for us because a lot of times he'll pick something that's like, hey, I see that you guys have um, frameless sliding glass doors, but you don't have any product data for it. What are you guys thinking? Or do you you want that? Or do you not want Did you model that properly? Or, you know, what did you do?
4: So there's so, a little check, checks and balances yeah, between yeah. the spec writer and yeah. you and, and vice versa. Exactly. Which this tool would also help with. Because if you have that yes. door modeled and there's no section in selected in whatever system this is, right. you get a red flag on the other app. Right. Yes.
3: So when can you have Excellent. this product ready? Uh, next yes, week, no so problem.
4: Okay. Uh, oh, you've thanks. been working on it 10 years, I, <laughs> I heard on. you say. <laughs> well, <laughs> off and on, yeah. But do we have anything to show for it? Well... I mean, Spec Wizard came out of it. Um, outline yep. specs came out of it, but um, that's Which, thank you for that's it, it so far.
0: Yeah. I I, yeah. I, I honestly, the Outline Spec Wizard. When I was like, one project, I was thrown in on, and we were submitting for um, a design development package, and all they required was outline specs, and nobody had written them yet. And I went through and I'm selecting every one of the parts that I know later. are going to be. 30 minutes later, I had absolutely everything that I needed. and I was Yeah, 200 like, short forms. Literally That's from so that really point on, I've been preaching our cat since till I'm <laughs> blue in the face because of that. Well,
4: oh, I thought we had another guest. We do.
0: We do have another guest. Welcome. Hi. Thankfully, we're going to introduce um, somebody who just walked up, the better pan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to argue with that.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> since you heard us sort of talking about this, you know you haven't heard Neil's voice, so because Neil's not here, because Neil's wife is here and she sent him home.
1: Yes, with the children. So.
0: Someone's got to watch them,
1: exactly. And exactly.
3: it's his turn.
1: It is, Mr. Totally. <laughs> yes. We somehow trade off conventions. Yeah, awesome.
3: Perfect. Yes. So. Well, thanks for thanks for joining in.
1: Welcome. It's Thank awesome. you for having us. Please,
3: please introduce. <laughs> who you are and what you do, okay. besides put up with Neil.
1: <laughs> well, um, I am also an architect, and I started out my career doing schools, and then I moved into institutional and commercial work, and through the connections there, I got hired on the owner's side at Lockheed Martin, and was facilities architect there, and then the lead of the workspace management group. Wow. And so I got to direct design and tell other architects what to do, which is way better. Was it? It's way better to be on the owner's side. I totally
3: saw an opening here for, <laughs> yeah. for a conversation, like a point of view that we don't normally have. Yes. That was awesome. So,
1: and coming from the profession and being on the consultant side for so many years, I know what to expect when it comes to design and drawings and services. So, when people may try and get away with stuff. I'm like, nope, sorry. Right. Uh, I, nice try. Yeah, I know. I know what it's supposed to look like. I know what level of detail you're supposed to have in there. Um, and so now, uh, for almost two years now, I've been at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory simply because it is five miles from home. <laughs> uh, and And it's now, I mean, I love, I love my prior job. I wasn't looking, but this one came across my desk. And it's also the opportunity to uh, do so much more because Lawrence Livermore Lab is building new buildings. Uh, It's a one-mile square campus. It started as a Navy base in World War II, and there are over 700 buildings in one square mile. Wow. A lot of them are old. Aging infrastructure. Um, They really, right now, we're uh, working on designing some just minor rehab for a 1943 barracks building for offices. It hasn't been occupied for 10 years. We're our own AHJ, so we have a little bit of leeway with what we're doing. What's AHJ? Authority-having jurisdiction. Gotcha. so when you have to get plans permitted yeah. we do it ourselves wow. okay. so we do have an in-house fire marshal who does it and we have an in-house electrical high voltage electrical engineer who checks for electrical mm-hmm. um, but we also have uh, our group project management engineering construction um, we have about 40 or 50 people that are pms cms architects um, myself the lead architect and i have two other and then uh, engineers of every profession we have cost estimators
3: so you guys are the one-stop shop, yeah, for all that stuff.
1: So there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of spaces that are constantly being rehabbed and remodeled, and um, so that smaller designs we do in-house, but the bigger ones we don't have the bandwidth to handle. Okay. And so one of my my big projects right now is as we're about to kick off design on two new buildings. One's a three-story office building, and one's a lab building. And then there's another a third lab building coming along, and then. Ooh. Their future buildings uh, coming down the pipe, but uh, we don't have any architectural design standards.
2: Yeah.
1: So I came from Lockheed where Gensler had been hired and created three finished palettes, where you had options from within those and we published uh, the all the specs and design standards online for all of our AEs and contractors. And so I'm trying to implement that here, at least where I can.
3: For your in-house team, For teams. in-house and for our, our
1: external consultants. Okay. And so that we can have basically a kit of parts, so that your creativity can be where it needs to be, right. and not on reinventing the wheel every yeah. time, or relying on PMs who think that they know design.
4: <laughs> I'm just curious how you set that up. Like, is it just a, a network file folder? Or no, no, is no. Well, it's a fancy well, system.
1: It's, well, it's an online system. Well, like for um, at Lockheed, it's published online. You can go to Lockheed Martin Space Systems, Sunnyvale, California, and you can find the engineering standards. Mm. And then I'm. There are always security constraints with firewalls and what information would be published through a national laboratory for the DOE. Um, So I haven't quite worked through that mechanism yet because there's a lack of hierarchy generally overall. It used to be University of California run. So they come from this RD academia type of mentality. Um, So it's it's, it's exciting. I mean, it's like a brand new frontier and I've got a lot of support for it. but the implementation of it is still to be worked out. Although we are having the uh, design firm for the office building do those standards for us. For the office building with the idea that they're, they will be, lab- in or okay. will be finished in. They will be in the laboratory. And it was its own project. And then the timing of things, we were rolling it into this other one. Yeah, so it's exciting. And it's... Um, I'm able to come here because of that, because of our new buildings and my, my, I had to do justification for work and the idea is, hey, we're doing all these new buildings. I need to know what the latest and greatest is in the sure. industry. Yeah. I need to know what's happening, what's going on out there. And so, um, okay, so sure. So, stay home. <laughs> me'll stay home. Uh, and I've been footloose and fancy free in New York since <laughs> Sunday afternoon.
3: So, so what are you seeing here at the show that has got you excited about your job about architecture in general?
1: Well, yeah, I, I haven't been to so many. The last AIA conference I went to was Chicago, which uh, somebody said was 2014, oh, I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I always get reinvigorated, and um, I just find it's inspiring to me, because even though in my everyday work I don't get a lot of opportunities for high design or pushing the envelope, it, it reminds me to go ahead and uh, take the chances where I can to insert design where I can do it, right? Like where you can have an impactful bit of design and it doesn't have to break the budget, it doesn't have to put people out of their comfort zone, but just enough so that they feel like, oh, okay, yeah, you're, you're value-added with what you're doing here. We wouldn't have thought of that sort of a thing, right? Oh, and this is why we're here yes. as architects. Um, not just to oh, draw okay. up your lab redesign and work out some details. Well, yeah. So um, coming here, I, I missed my Thursday morning seminars because it was a late night Wednesday. <laughs> but they started seven a.m. I and mean, that's crazy, right? Yeah, it's four a.m. Especially when you're California. coming from the, the the West Coast. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So uh, I, um, but I was able to walk the show floors yesterday and then sit in on a lead before paint uh, one with the vendor. And it's just, I'm amazed by one, the number of vendors they have here. I mean, so many companies. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen this many. Yeah,
3: you yeah. can tell when times are good, <laughs> right?
1: Yes, and the destination yeah. is good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then today I was, uh, did make my 7 a.m. Yeah, seminars. Right wow. Um, <laughs> 7, 8.45, 10.30, uh, and then the I was in focus a focus group at noon. Better, like, so it's been really interesting to see, um, the early one was neuroscience, <laughs> wayfinding okay. and then the next one was by one of the authors um, uh, she just she's got a book signing here oh. the one on um, basically design in place and, and how design is everywhere around us even if you don't think it's architecture yeah right you have these architectural building and then you have the everyday stuff well it's all the built environment and we should be pushing for that to be the next revolution where uh, sustainability and the, well the environment really started with Rachel Carson's silent spring in nineteen sixty one. That was a big way of thinking about the whole environment instead of just the lakes or the oceans and such. Yeah, right. So she's saying the next thing is the built environment and us as architects taking responsibility, taking ownership and really pushing for that revolution that everything matters. Every every design decision we make matters. For
4: I, I vote did
1: for one. her to be the
0: head of AIA. <laughs>
1: Thank actually,
0: you. Actually, <laughs> as you were saying that, I was thinking to myself, Neil just lost his job. <laughs> 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 Neil totally just lost his job.
1: No, no, I don't want to do that. That's okay.
0: Neil's last podcast. Sorry, Neil. Oh,
1: uh, no, that's okay. He's, he's, uh, his job's safe for now. He's, it's safe, it's safe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was thinking, though, as I looked, I was looking through the catalog, and I was looking for, what I was looking for was stuff on, um, from the owner's perspective, right? It's all, because I was in uh, risk management, in design and in construction for designers, all day Wednesday, and I'm thinking, all these architects are complaining about owners and what owners are making them do. And I'm like, well, I'm both. <laughs> yeah, so I, I understand what's reasonable and what isn't, and I try to tell my people, hey you guys, this is what you can expect.
0: You know, that's interesting, because a lot of times people don't understand what's going on whether it's politically financially or anything else you know they don't have um, they're not privy to like the, the long view mm-hmm. of things and so they're just like oh, I can't believe they're cutting this you know because of this well they're cutting this maybe because you don't understand you know, it's, it's the whole thing exactly yeah. you know you're right I mean, well she's gonna be doing a uh, out the whole AIA thing next year.
1: I am. That, I am uh, <laughs> to, to
0: give a speech on that. Actually, I mean, that'd be a fantastic topic, though.
1: And I, I think that one could either be. I think that one would work better as a panel, right? Yeah. To yeah. get yeah. other yeah. owners to talk
0: I mean, about it. Because I mean, I've got a handful of friends that I used to work for. Now they're um, project managers or like you know directors at like public school systems. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you know they're coming from it from the perspective of yeah, we used to do all of these public schools. But now I see the long game, and I understand what it is. And I'm like, oh, now they actually do that. So I mean, you know, having perspectives like that, I, yeah, I mean, panels—it I, I it would be a
3: great information for a lot of people to hear. Oh, yeah. yeah,
1: I think so because um, a lot of owner owners do need to be educated. But those of us who've been, been in been the on profession, both sides. Been you on both sides. can do the
3: educating. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. exactly
1: on both sides as to what's. What our expectations are and roles and responsibilities and then um that we're not trying to screw over architects <laughs> right
0: I mean, right you're trying to sucker soul you know?
1: exactly
0: so i mean when you were well i mean now and then when you were at lockheed i mean did you find yourself educating architects a lot on like why you know stuff, look like, yeah. you know mm-hmm. i understand from you know from your point of view this is you know you know kind of sucks but yeah. this is kind of what we have to do
1: I, I did I Cause, did a cause, lot
0: because we never you know like so we, you know Evan and I you know we're working either for K through 12 or higher ed and stuff like that and yeah they have project managers but a lot of times they're not architect project managers mm-hmm. so they don't know you know how to they're just like well you know this is the standard so just do it you it's know, maintenance kind of maintenance driven you know, ma- yeah.
3: exactly obviously they have to deal with their maintenance people all the time and they have to deal with right. us a few times right mm-hmm. so they're going to listen more yeah. to their own people, for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. That's that's yeah. an excellent point, and that's that's one of the things I learned at Lockheed was uh, there are a lot of stakeholders. It's not just the project implementation, or in our case PMET group, um, the in-house subject matter experts, and CMs and PMs, but it's your users, your end users, which are scientists and engineers. Right. And then there's the whole maintenance staff. They're going to have to take care of all this stuff. And so you want to give them materials that are functional and durable or that if it does break like carpet tile or VCT or Armstrong ceiling tile like it's the easiest thing in the world to go get a replacement for. Yeah, something Um, you can have stock of. Exactly and and also uh, one of our big pushes not just for that and for sustainability is um, American made because for uh, the DOD we have to comply with the Buy American Act and so that's kind of a struggle when you have contractors who don't understand like even your architect's engineers can specify certain things and then the contractor's going getting a lower price somewhere else they're trying to do a substitution request right like, right you yeah, know you really can't do that here yeah. right uh and then at both those at the lab and Lockheed, there's a whole security layer of things that we have to deal with but in terms of um getting the stakeholder buy-in this is where we use, as design professionals educate them about hey okay i understand you want durable in this map but hey what if i found you a nicer looking soap dispenser Rather than this craptastic one. <laughs> or, hey, do these accessories work for you? Or, uh, hey, I, this is, I know this is kind of a new product, but look, it's, it's durable, here's the data sheet, it's easily replaceable. We always get attic stock on a new, yeah. a new construction, so here are right. a couple boxes right. of it, right. and so on. Um, and then I, I think that what they, most people, is they want to be heard, right? They want to be listened to, they want to be heard, yeah. Yeah. and they may not get their way in the end because of right. other factors, but yeah. if you can just listen to what their issues are, they'll, you'll have a lot better chance of getting their market yeah. And that I found to be a really important part of the whole process. Awesome. Yes.
0: I learned that, I don't necessarily say the hard way, but um, dealing a lot more with uh, higher end, you know, and you've got so many different personalities, so many different user groups involved with it that, you know, really kind of getting them involved early, often, and you know, if you have to make a decision that affects something that they are already giving you direction on, you know, it's, it's able to kind of like do that, you know. At least hear them, listen to them, kind of you know, if it's well we gotta change it. Understanding their position and understanding how to explain to them why we have to change
1: it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Exactly. Well, your original question, <laughs> I think it was, uh, what have I seen here? Um, in addition to a lot more vendors, um, a lot more diversity. I mean, really, it's you, you see a lot of different races, a lot more women, um, all age groups, a lot more younger professionals. And to me, that's inspiring because it's part of the whole push by the AIA to be more inclusive and um, diversify and not just be this old white guys network, right? Yeah. They hey, die.
4: we're old white guys. I think we're all white yeah. and yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> white guys. <laughs> no, <laughs> white guys. Sorry, <laughs> Neil's one too. <laughs> uh, I was just in a focus group about what the. It's a hard an outside firm hired by the AIA to basically talk about how we thought of the AIA and what they could do to. Advocate for architects and the architectural profession, and, and the sort of what are the things they can do better, and should they be more active uh, writing their white papers, take a stand on things. And, and kind of, somebody said that it was a really good idea that it doesn't have to be political, I'm doing air quotes right now, uh, but that you're looking at issues with the, the perspective as a design professional, as in we are licensed, we have to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public, and therefore, do these conditions in this situation. Uh, do that, or are they complying with code, and uh, and, and are there a sustainable in take on these issues from that perspective? And uh, I mean, we're all like, yes, you should. You, the AIA cannot keep being an institution that just, just says we're this and we're going to protect our, the profession and stuff. We need, we need to be at the forefront of what's happening in the world. And then my big thing is fees. The dues, right? Yeah. I'm never a member, and neither is Neil unless work is paying for it. Yeah. And it's that everybody was in agreement with that, and the idea being if you had level level dues that were a lot less money, then you would get so many more members. Exactly. And this was a pilot, we tried to push for it to be a pilot project like 15 years ago, when I was heavily involved before kids and marriage. Yeah. <laughs> and it just never went anywhere. And I said, you know what, the AIA wants to remain exclusive, that's why. They can't do that anymore, right. or, or right. They, it,
0: yeah.
1: the AIA will become
0: irrelevant yeah. in this day and age. I mean, when you put it that way, I mean, it really kind of gets counterintuitive to this new push and drive for you know, inclusiveness and equity. I mean, to I, I hear so many people like, Yeah, I mean, there's no point in me really being you know, AIA because what does it do for me? Mm-hmm. And I think they need to start listening more to those people who, okay, you say, we know, what can they do for, or what will it do for me, this is what we can do. And they're not really doing, I mean, I don't know if they're, the narrative is getting okay. out there as much, you know, there's far more um, non-AIA, art, you know, mm-hmm. registered architects out there than there are AI.
1: Absolutely, and, and my comment, and this is one I, I, I thought I've had for years, is the fact that the AIA is actually the only professional organization for architects that advocates right. at the, the state, Uh, national level and local level in in California, in the Bay Area, is very, very active. The AIA California Council is very active. And so it's in the best interest to say, hey, we want everybody to be a member because you all benefit and you really do get out of it what you put into it. And Neil and I have had this discussion when he wrote his (laughs) article. And he goes, I understand that, but we're way out in Livermore and Oakland's so far away and this and that. And I said, yes, I understand that. However, if for, you're benefiting with, for what the AIA is doing. yeah. And so me being here is another way that I feel re-energized and re-engaged in the profession at this level. Um, totally. I went through, you know, you get those cards that you can get all stamped yeah. and everything yeah. like that, so I've been on a mission. <laughs> so the one at the AIA reception yesterday afternoon, you go to all 18 tables for all the different knowledge groups,
2: yeah. and
1: then you go to get a drawing for um, an iPad Pro and Apple Pencil. So I did that, and so talking with everybody, um, I actually got uh, into a deep discussion with somebody who's on the Documents Committee, He's uh, because he was in the Risk Management, he runs like the Risk Management part of it, or I forget. Anyway, he, he turned me on, he's pointing me out to the actual VP of the AIA Documents and Risk Management group, and they're asked if i be interested in being on it, because I do have that other perspective of having been on both sides. And so I'm like sure absolutely now with what time I don't know <laughs> yeah. we have to have that conversation about a commitment uh, the time commitment but I, I definitely think at this point in my career I would like to be able to share my knowledge yeah. because I finally feel like hey I know some stuff.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You've arrived.
1: I have. I, always, the emerging professionals young man said, when I said, well, I used to be an emerging professional. He said, well, now you're an emerged professional. Yeah. Right? I said, that's yeah, it. I'm an emerged like professional. Right?
3: I like your, your idea about the the lower fees because I mean, to me, that is part of being inclusionary. Mm-hmm.
1: Right?
2: I exactly.
3: I mean, if, if you're going, if you want a more diverse perspective, you have to find more ways to include more people and that is a huge barrier. It I is. Mean, even even just getting to an event like this where you can have this kind of exposure and be kind of fed as a professional with all of the things going on in the city at large, but then also in this epicenter inside Javits Center here. I mean, it's, it's an amazing experience. It is. To get out of your norm, your day-to-day, and be inspired by what's possible by walking around a city like this, I mean, you guys are close to San Francisco, I bet you don't go into the city we that We never much, go into the right? city. Right? <laughs> but but, you, but that, there's that thing that it's right there, I mean, I'm close to L.A. and it's the same way. Um, so, so, getting out of our normal day-to-day and coming to a place like this is really a chance to, to walk away with being really enriched. Yes. And, and there's a huge segment of the profession who is not included in that at right. all. Exactly. Right. And doesn't everybody need that same injection, like that radical injection of inspiration and, and what's possible and where our profession is heading and, and, and to really help just get excited and put our energy in a similar direction. This is the opportunity to do that it once is. a year. This really is. And I feel like that's a huge missed opportunity.
0: Because of you just can't keep shelling out of the pocket right. all the time, you know. and having the access to the vendors, finding out what's you know what's available out there. I mean, hell, if if half the art architects can go through their specs and find out that they're probably outdated, or the you know the specs of you know that particular company's like out of business. because Yes, I've had both of those examples, <laughs> right. um, and you know actually see what they can do. I mean. Just seeing all of the different vendors in here, I've got tons of different ideas. Oh, I could use this for this or I could use this for that. Yeah. You know, and being able to do that and start to really kind of say, alright, you know, this is more than just, you know, a bunch of stuffy people talking about their egos and stuff like that. It really is something that can energize you. I was talking to a
3: guy last night and he was like, well, th- what's, what's the real value here? I could do all this on the web. And and I was like, that is a crazy perspective because and I get it. Like, not everybody is a fan of the AIA, right? And not everybody sees the value that they provide because it doesn't impact them directly. He was a one-person one firm, right? So he ha- definitely has, like, an, which is shared by a lot of people, that's a similar uh, way of thinking. But but to me, I look at it the opposite. Like, this is why I'm here. I'm here to meet these people and see yeah. people face-to-face to get that FaceTime time. Whether it's product, whether it's people who I know online, or to get excited about architecture. I mean, there's a there's a common purpose here, and this is when I feel it. Mm-hmm. And to me, that energizes me to, to do it again, right? To go back home, take these ideas, share them with as many people as I can. And that's an infectious thing, and that can really help our profession. So I, I, I really feel like... And I talk talked to him and and I felt like he got a little bit inspired because he'd never listened to the podcast before He's like I'm going to try it out I feel inspired (laughs) and I thought okay I I did a little something hopefully it it leads him down a path of taking it further next time so outside
0: of all of the architecting things of in the Janet Center what have you been doing out there
4: I have been
1: been walking the streets of New York walking 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 I was
4: especially this area I've seen some crazy architecture oh yeah
1: it's I've been downtown, um, the farthest north I got was so uh, finally got to the Met, which I've been a member of for like fifteen years. Really? My stepdad renews my membership every year for Christmas and nice. it's inspiring to me. I'll tell you the best thing which we did last year for the first time was the walk the high line. Yeah. I remember when it's a competition. Yeah. And That's I was spectacular.
4: Just, it's it's so such inspiring. I, it it's, is. They just planted nature in the middle of this this massive city and just turned it inside out yeah well
1: and it was you know it started because the people who could see it saw nature growing right if nature will take over right and then they didn't want it torn down and then there was the competition what can we do with it and I just thought it was such a brilliant idea
4: and the, the way they work in the, uh, I don't know what you call them, the, the deck boards themselves are like cast concrete or something. Yeah. yeah. And they have a really funky shape to them that allows the plants to grow in between them. It just, them. just, just becomes like
1: too. this
3: threading of, of hardscape yeah. and, mm-hmm. and landscape. And then
1: the railroad elements that are there, too. And they left
4: all that, so it's that, uh, I don't know, 1900 rivets and steel structure. It was that built also in the 30s, a, so
1: yeah. The a really cool
4: was, aesthetic to it as well.
1: It does. And, and what's so... Phenomenal to me, and I really, I do. I get like, I get a little overwhelmed when I go up there because <laughs> so many people are using it. It's not yeah, just the yeah. tourists; oh, right? yeah, it's like yeah. everybody, so all ages. So activated, yeah. It's phenomenal. I, I joined the High Line last year. I'm a member of it. I'm a supporting member because you know it gets like five percent public funding. Such an amazing
0: or. vision, yeah. It well, is. So
1: it's so well executed.
0: Yeah, and what, what I love about it is, is it's now become a catalyst for other cities. Who either have like you know rails to trails back. or you know all these other things, and, and so I mean they're like oh yeah yeah you know like kind of like the high line let's do something like that. I mean I've done a pedestrian bridge that we wanted to kind of do something similar to that in kind of the, the landscape elements. and then we were we were in the pre uh, pre concept phase really of another pedestrian bridge, but they want it to be, and it's a small one, but they, because it's integrated into the campus, they want it to be Highline-esque. Oh, but yeah, it's <laughs> you know, the inspired. The fact it's that they a, know
1: about it is exactly. awesome. Yeah, but you're yeah. on the East Coast too, yeah. right? Yeah. I don't know, yeah, the so. West Coast is not so much, it's not really known unless uh, you're in the profession. Right, right. Well, the other, the other great thing, and this is what we um, discovered last year with the kids, which we brought them for the first time, and they were 10 and 12 to New York, and they absolutely love New York City. They felt safer walking the streets of Manhattan at night right. than they do in our little burb because <laughs> there are so many people,
2: Yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And All hours. they absolutely love Times Square. They love the TKTS steps. And this year, their they're one night in the city, they're like, oh, "We got to go to the red steps. We got to go to the red steps." And Saturday night, last Saturday night, it was so crowded. It, was, it uh, was insane. But you just, you know, you walk up there and you just find a spot and you sit yourself down and. You just look at all the people and the billboards and it just that, the brilliance of that concept of that was, what was that, sidewalk there, it was like nothing, It was there was no place for people to stop and rest and yeah. look at everything they wanted to look at and to say, hey, we're going to make this a building that serves a prime function in this area which is show tickets and then we're going to make the whole roof of this accessible, yeah. a place to stop and stay. Yeah. And it's such a brilliant idea. And it just goes to show you that these ideas, they're not some grand design of this phenomenal star architect building that's very, very cool. However, most people are going to have contact with it every day, right? And so this is where we push my big thing at work. And as well as just advocating for architecture and good design in general is that let's do those interventions where we can. It doesn't have to be everywhere, it doesn't have to be something grand, but it's just a series of like
0: interventions and follies throughout that enrich the city rather than just kinda like do these
2: little things. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And I think it, it shows people who like we deal with on a daily basis on our projects who aren't Excited about those types of interventions that you're talking about. It allows them to experience them in the real world and yeah. to know, or to maybe even get their gears turning on what's possible. So that we can point it out and they can experience it. That yeah, like this is we we can do things like this on an on a campus that's been around for 80 years, and there's there's so much possibility. But they get so stuck into their kind of myopic vision of what their campus is. It's very hard to start thinking outside the box, right? So. It's great to have examples like this where we can experience it, see that it actually works really well, look at that engagement by the public, and and talk about that success, and and really just lower the barrier to entry, the the anxiety that they have of trying something different. Mm
1: Bill, your
4: organization? Yeah, um, another thing I've noticed in the city over the last uh, 15 years or so is the simple use of giant uh, planters, a few simple chairs and tables, and paint. Mm-hmm. That's all you need. They exactly. paint the pavement a certain color, put down a couple of uh, planners, and yeah. all of a sudden you have this little square where people can sit and mill about, and, yep. and yep. the yep. rest of New York City revolves around it. Uh, yeah. Exactly.
1: I mean, I've just walked back and forth through Herald Square part you know, a million times. And it, it's, that's a great idea. And there was um, another street where they had... There's a business where it's like takes up a parking space, and it's a mobile patio cool. with... Nice. little cafe tables and stuff yeah. that's cool it's kind of like in San Francisco that's a Tiny have, idea. yeah they have these um, the same thing like they like do little this parking little parking day. parking yeah. park parking spot parks yeah
0: okay. we do parking day uh, which is one of those where they do little interventions where they you know in DC they'll take over you know parking space like you little, get you get that square yeah. footage right yeah. one parking yeah. space yeah. so yeah. we just do, do these little little tiny pocket parks and you know architects and and everybody else kind of like gets theirs and it's just like these littered like little some will do a little cafe some will do a little tiny you know parking space sized skate park or something like that you know and just and but it's it's ways to kind of like invigorate it or at least give people the vision of what the city can do with just all these little spaces generate ideas generate ideas yeah normally they're
4: just empty concrete or or empty pavement yeah so shut the street down
3: right and make it social, make it pedestrian, and then make it really on those ideas. You almost
4: lose nothing. No, people get really involved. Yeah,
1: you you invite people
3: system. into that space. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly.
1: Awesome. And slow the pace. Yeah. We're always so... Tough to do Raleigh. here. It is. Well, and I was walking, I was zipping yeah. through the high line. Because <laughs> <Well. laughs> I was coming back up from the new school to get here for my 12 o'clock focus group, and I was like,
4: that's excuse good. me, excuse me. <laughs> into people like,
1: damn tourists, get on my way, I'm on a mission. <laughs>
0: Probably the wrong place to take, yeah, you know, as a shortcut to get yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> it was the
1: quickest route, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Actually, another thing I was thinking of earlier as I'm walking the High Line and walking around, and nobody has a regular camera anymore, very few people do, we all have our phones. Yeah. And what it has done is democratized oh, this yeah. photography yeah. and this experience yeah. of place where you can be a tourist from anywhere and everybody's taking pictures, and the fact that they're sharing them and they want to document these experiences is quite phenomenal and moving to me because it means that people actually do care about design and they do care about the built environment, even if they may not think about it. They may not ever think that they will need an architect in their life, but here they are experiencing all this and taking pictures. You look
4: up at the Empire State Building or the Chrysler Building and you're like, wow, that is beautiful. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to you guys. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the Chrysler Building is my favorite. I wish I could go inside right. someday.
0: That, that's, it's my favorite. I, we walked out, and we, we have another guy from uh, Evans' office that was walking with us. And I'm like, "There's my favorite building. It's one of the reasons why I got into architecture. Yeah. Wow. There's two wow. buildings, that, uh, two different reasons why: Chicago Tribune and the Chrysler. <laughs> so, I mean, so so sorry. you're home. So I'm home. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you know our.
1: Um, our uh, wedding tables, Neil's and my wedding tables, were photographs of architectural icons that we had each taken, and like Stonehenge, Nerd.
2: Eiffel Tower
1: <laughs> was my picture. Stonehenge was his. The Chrysler Building was our table. The, I'm uh, like the main awesome. table has to be the Chrysler Building.
3: I like how Neil went He's, old. Yeah. What? He had to go old. Well, Stonehenge. He well, he wasn't <laughs> as
1: old back then.
3: He was the project manager. Of well.
1: <laughs> you guys.
3: Alright, well he's not here so we get There's to do that. <laughs> well thanks you guys both for joining us today. Uh, it was fantastic. It looks thanks, good. Bill. <laughs> thanks, thanks, thanks Joan.
2: Thank you.